Welcome to the Spirit School Podcast. My name is Danielle Sarank, also known as the Squamish Medium. I created this space to inspire lightworkers to go from fear to clear and get connected to their sacred abilities and spiritual practices. I love supporting women through the creation of their heart-centered spiritual businesses in a way that lights them up and aligns them with their purpose. I am passionate to share all I know about the journey to becoming a professional psychic medium, mentor, and coach for the developing lightworker and spiritual entrepreneur. Through interviews, honest stories of my adventures, and lessons I learned, I hope to empower, inspire, and uplift you and get you excited about your life again. Welcome home. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Spirit School. I am very excited to talk about grief and mediumship today. If you are watching on my YouTube channel, you're getting the full presentation, beautiful slides. If you're listening to the podcast version, just as cool, just as exciting. But if this conversation really does uh, ignite or spark something within you, definitely go check out my YouTube channel. You just look for Squamish Medium and you'll see the full presentation there. I was asked to create a presentation on grief and mediumship for one of my good friends, Tony, who has a membership called the Soul Star Society. And so this is a presentation I put together for her membership and I presented on yesterday. She asked me to come to present from an end-of-life doula lens. So for those that don't know, I'm a certified end-of-life doula. And I took the doula course because, uh, well, I am interested in end-of-life doula work, not just like the visualing, but helping people um, normalize the conversation around death and dying and help people with legacy projects and planning for their own passing and helping families through grief. I mean, as we experience mediumship, uh, mediums do encounter a lot of people who are grieving. And so I found myself in a position as a medium after about six years where I had never experienced grief myself. And so it was a hard area for me to meet my clients at. You know, a lot of what comes through in mediumship is the world of spirit uses our references, our lived experiences. And when it came to grief, I had only at that time lost my grandparent. And I was quite young when I lost the majority of them. So it was a different experience for me. And so I really wanted to take the end-of-life doula program, not only to become a certified end-of-life doula and hopefully one day go into the doula work, which doesn't align with my life right now because I have two little kids. And also, just side note, I have a puppy, um, so you might get some background noise of her. We just rescued her from Mexico, and um, she is chewing on a bull's penis, so you might get some background noise, so just be weary of her. She has attachment um, to us, as you can imagine, being a rescue. She's only been with us for seven days today, actually, a week today, so do mind that not mind that in the background um but you know i didn't i couldn't meet empathetically my clients where they were at now i will say i'm going to do an entire episode um two episodes actually next month on pet communication and and you know signs from departed loved ones in the pet form because i experienced my first experience with grief five weeks ago when I lost the love of my life bender, which I know I've mentioned a few times on here. And I will go more into depth on that experience because um, I've been keeping a grief log. I've been kind of tracking it again. Um, as a medium, I am so invested in the art of my craft that I hyper detail things, including my own grief journey, because I know it's going to support not only the spirit school audience, but the students who are aligned to work with me and the mentorship capacity. And of course, clients who are aligned to work with me in the mediumistic capacity. So um, I have experienced grief at a very deep level. And I'll talk about that as we go through this class. I'm just going to call it on grief and mediumship, a journey to compassion. And I'm going to teach you a little bit about grief, what it is, what I've learned about grief and my studies through becoming end of life doula 
and then obviously things I have read after. In the show notes for both the podcast and the YouTube channel, I will also reference a few of my favorite books on death and dying that um, a lot of this presentation is inspired off of. So hopefully you enjoy it. It's a heavy topic, but I'm a fun girl. So hopefully I'll be able to bring some lightness to this topic. And of course, at the very end, I have tips and I have, um, you know, a whole section about what I feel is the medium's role in working with people who are grieving. So enjoy. So I loved this quote that I found when I was studying grief. And the quote is, the art of living, grief is the art of living with your heart ripped open. And again, up until last month, I couldn't even comprehend what this meant. But as a mom of two young kids, as a wife, as somebody who is serving the world of spirit, I was in some of the deepest grief, the deepest grief I've ever experienced in my life. My heart was truly ripped open. I could not feel I couldn't even feel like I could take a deep breath, but I still had to go on with life because life doesn't stop because you're grieving. And so this quote, when I went through my end of life doula journals, when I pulled this out, and I, I'm sorry, I can't actually give credit to whoever quoted it. I didn't write that down. But the art of living with your heart ripped open is 100% what it felt like for me when I was experiencing that grief and that deep level of grief, which I still am today. I mean, the puppy helps, but I'll, I'll explain the whole synchronistic um, chain of events that also led to us being gifted Luna, our puppy, um, which Bender definitely helped out with. So I can't wait to share all that with you in November. But for now, I just wanted to say I feel this quote so deeply. And I know that anyone who has experienced grief at any level will have um, some resonance to this quote for sure. So there are different types of grief. So there's anticipatory grief, which occurs before a loss. Um, The series of events that creates an expectation of death. Um, So this could be a cancer diagnosis, um, terminal cancer. This could be, you know, something that is predicted. And one of the worst things I think the medical community does is give us like a timeline on um, how long we have to live. I think that's just giving people a death sentence right there. Um, there was a study that Anisia Morniano did. If you read her book, Dying to Be Me, she's fascinating. Um, she she healed from stage four end of life cancer. She was in hospice. She actually died and came back and had all these beautiful lessons that she wrote in her book, Dying to Be Me. And she talked about this study, not in that book, but on her podcast, I heard where there was uh, two people who were, one guy was said, note your cancer free, it's all good, like go on about your life. And then this younger girl um, got this like terminal cancer diagnosis and she died within six months and he went on to live years and it turned out their medical charts were reversed and he actually had cancer and she didn't and she still died within six months so again when we look at studies like this with people who are studying near-death experiences and end of life um you know end of life phenomenon i think the medical community needs to stop putting timelines on uh how long we're expected to live i think that that is a detriment to our um, life affirmation and our living experience but it does happen and i know that a lot of people are like how long do i have right? But really we know it's not up to us to get into God's plans, right? Um, so with anticipatory grief, it doesn't shorten the grief process. Like people who even get a chance to say goodbye, people who, you know, get like years with their loved ones who have been diagnosed with ALS or cancer, um, it doesn't shorten the grief process for them. So that's very important to be aware of. 
And the other kind of grief, there's four that I'm going to talk about today. So there's normal and common grief, which is gradual movement towards acceptance of loss. About 50 to 80% of people experience this. So I'm going to talk about um, Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief coming up. But this is like people who move within those five stages of grief and then come to acceptance of the loss. I don't think we ever truly heal from loss, but there is a point um, in the grieving process where we definitely have acceptance with what is. And that takes you to, you know, a bit of a different healing level. So there's complicated grief, which is grief that lingers, grief that can cause depression and post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, those that have trouble resuming regular life, this con- this complicated grief. Now, when I feel into complicated grief, I also feel that a large pe- amount of people who have been previously affected by depression and untreated depression or even treated depression may experience uh, complicated grief more commonly than those who didn't have a pre- um, you know, pre, I can't even say the word, you know, what I'm talking about, uh, people who didn't have issues with depression and stuff before. So that's complicated grief. And what I experience, and which I think is quite common in community is disenfranchised grief. So this is the grief that's not recognized by the greater society. This is, um, miscarriages and pets and intergenerational losses and suicides. Um, so again, like when I lost my, my pet bender, I mean, I might as well have lost one of my children and, the greater community, the greater public, when I would say, oh yeah, no, we just had a loss in our family. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, it was my cat. Oh, oh. And then I was like almost apologetic for sharing that I'd lost my beloved pet. And I know that I had one of my good friends, Emily, say to me when I was like, I know it's just a cat. She's like, stop saying that. Like that was one of the most helpful things that I experienced um, when I was like going through my grieving because I experienced disenfranchised loss. I've also had a few miscarriages. And I remember the last one I had before my successful pregnancy with Katie Jane, um, you know, I was about 12 weeks along and this loss hit me so hard. It hit me so deeply. I and mean, even my husband couldn't understand why I was so upset. And so this is what disenfranchised grief looks like. So those are the four main types of grief that people experience. And when we talk about the five stages of grief, I'm looking at, there's a lot of people who have tried to put pen to paper on what grief is, including Carl Jung. Um, There's a whole history to the, the science and study of grief. But the one that I resonate most with is the five stages of grief by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. I do recommend you check out any of her books if you're interested in end-of-life doula care or you're interested in... Um, grief uh, as a science or as a research study and so she talks about grief being the stages of denial anger bargaining and depression and acceptance but it's very important to also make note that when we're in this grieving cycle um, they don't happen in order and oftentimes we go back to a different type of grief and then we we kind of go backwards and forwards we kind of move within these five cycles i mean even after we have acceptance we might experience anger again and then go through the depression again and then get back to acceptance like i say i don't think the grieving process is ever fully done um especially for those who have lost like children or parents and you know I've been very fortunate in my life that I'm almost 40 and I still have like those who are very much closest to me I'm still with me today and I feel and that is not lost on me how blessed I am but um just look into Elizabeth Kubler-Ross if you are interested in this topic I highly recommend her and if you're a podcast fan like me obviously I have a podcast spirit school um 
she was recently, I don't know if it's recently, a year or two at least, but um, she was interviewed by Oprah on Super Soul Sunday when she was on her deathbed. And it was a very fascinating interview for somebody who you know, talked about fear of dying and, and had a whole bunch of um, studies and research around it but she was still scared to die. And it was a very fascinating interview and I highly recommend you check it out. I'll see if I can find the link to it and I would include it into the show notes if I can. So there are unhealthy ways of coping with grief. So some unhealthy ways that we see um, maybe amongst our clients or maybe we can recognize this within ourselves, um, substance abuse, overworking, giving up like just stop showering stop like feeding yourself properly like just giving up on everything um over serving which is very common with light workers i'm just going to throw myself into service as a way to avoid my own healing journey um apathy right just not caring just like lost all lust for life isolation is big so i know in going through grief um, i'm a very introverted person anyways i really enjoy my alone time um it was hard for me to reach out and i had a lot of friends saying like can we go for a walk and i'm like i just can't i just was isolating and i was also overworking in the sense where i didn't actually work in my business for the past six weeks which is why you guys didn't get the episode last week because i've just been dealing with so much grief myself but I spent three days cleaning and I don't clean anyone who knows me like I am not a homemaker my least favorite thing is anything that has to do the home cooking cleaning tidying laundry I dislike all of it but I cleaned every blind in my house um top to bottom like they are sparkling and that's how I spent three days after Bender died and so uh it's a it's a way to avoid and it's also we have to be gentle with people who are dealing with um grief in an unhealthy and I'm putting that in air quotes an unhealthy way because sometimes we're just like not prepared to deal with this stuff and we can't force people to deal with their stuff until they're ready so there might be a balance between unhealthy coping and healthy coping but it's worth mentioning these in this presentation also emotional eating, which is also totally me. Uh, you know, some people lose pe- lose their loved ones and like lose 10 pounds. I probably put on like 15 pounds in like one month because um, of the emotional eating that I experienced. So I'm not one of those people that loses weight during hard times. <laughs> um, some healthy grief coping mechanisms is reaching out to others, getting some fresh air, spending some time in nature, having a lot of patience with yourself, um, being aware of your triggers. And we actually learned in end of life doula school, not to use the word triggers because it could be triggering in itself. And so the best word that I found to replace triggers is evoking, right? Like this could be evoking to somebody. If you find yourself evoked, et cetera, et cetera, because language is obviously everything when we're dealing with, um, spiritual things or things that involve like trauma or past pains. Um, eating well and sleeping, very important for coping with grief. And of course, getting counseling and support. As mediums, we have to be very real that many of us who are not, you know, trained counselors or, um, you know, counselors or grief counselors or even like, uh, what's the word? Um, trauma-informed care specialists like a lot of us are not actually equipped to help somebody through the grief process and mediumship is not a cure for grief that is a thousand percent and we have to be very real about that Um, and I'll talk about all that as we go along the presentation as well so 
I have here that a, a quote by Richard Rohr that says pain is not when pain is not transformed, it will be transmitted. So doing the work to healing is very important. I know people who have carried unresolved grief for decades and it still comes up in how they show up in the world and how um, their pain is expressed through the decisions that they make in their lives. So it's very important that if you're carrying pain around with you, whether it's from grief of a loss of a relationship or grief of a loss of a job. I know I have a good friend who um, chose to leave an organization and is still experiencing grief from that decision because um, there's a situation where she felt forced out. Right. It wasn't like it was like this, like sovereign, fully sovereign decision. It was like it's my health at risk here. So there's even some grief and pain around that. So we need to make sure that we're dealing with our pain in very helpful ways and and ways that kind of transform it so that we're not transmitting it into our next relationships or our next jobs or, you know, that kind of like insecurity that can come up might play out in many areas of our life. So we just have to be very careful that we're doing the work. Um, when I talk about little grievers, so this is around children and grief, it's very important. And the term little grievers is actually a program that's out there. If you Google it, if you um, are experiencing loss and you need to uh, learn how to talk to children about it or how to support them, there is a program called Little Grievers. So I didn't create this saying, even though it's like super cute. Um, but it's best to be really direct and honest with little grievers. So it's also important to assess a level of understanding so that you know where to meet them at. So if you're dealing with a young child or even a preteen, you would want to ask something like, what do you think this means? To kind of gauge a level of understanding of how... Um, how they see the world now that they've experienced this, if they fully grasp it. And it's really good to be honest and clear. No light washing, no euphemisms, no, uh, you know, platitudes when it comes to uh, working with children in grief, right? They're in a better place. They're with the angels now. Like this is not helpful when it comes to little grievers. We need to basically say they're not coming back. How do you feel? Can I help you? And then also giving them, uh, you know, resources and people that they can talk to when they're not feeling okay. And just saying, you know, you can talk to me about this. Um, like they are not coming back. And, you know, I tell me how you're feeling. And if you don't want to talk about it now, just know that you could talk to me anytime. You could talk to your teacher. You can talk to your auntie. Like just be very clear on where they can go and reach out when they are ready to kind of process and talk about it. I know for my children, when it came to my cat, um, you know, my son was laying in bed next to me one morning. It was like day three. And I mean, I woke up crying every day and he just said to me, he's like, where's your cat, mom? Because it was always my cat. And I was like, he's gone, honey. And he's not coming back. And then he's like, oh, okay. And then he just kind of goes off. And then my little girl too, I mean, she didn't talk about it for like a week. And then she would say something about the cat. And I would just say, you know, do you want to talk about it? Um, I'm here. Do you want to talk about it? No. And so it's just letting them know that you are there and we are a safe space that even though I'm sad and grieving and like I'm trying to hold it together, I'm still open to hearing from you on what you want. Um, There was a time after the loss with Bender, she wanted to know details and I just said, I can't talk about it right now, Katie. Like I'm just too sad. And I just had to be very honest about that as well because she wanted to know what he experienced and I was experiencing, I was in my anger stage of grief um, because he suffered a lot and um, the work that I do with spirit I guess I was a little bit mad at the angels like why would you let a cat suffer like this and so I was in my anger stage and so I had to be honest with her on that too I'm like I'm just too sad to talk about this right now so ask me in a few days and I'll be ready to talk about it hopefully
And it's also very important when dealing with little grievers to validate their emotions. So I see you're very sad about this right now, right? Just mirroring back what you're seeing, or I see you're having a hard time talking about this right now and not trying to like fix things and not trying to like problem solve for them, but like literally just validating so that they feel seen in that moment and they'll get a level of safety and trust with you as you do that. So I wanted to talk a little bit about death culture, right? So there's obviously fear of death, even though none of us are making it out of here. We know that's inevitable. It's part of the whole human process. But we have, um, and I'm talking about North America because I'm not super aware of, um, you know, death cultures outside of um, North America or even the indigenous culture that, you know, my grandmother was indigenous, my dad's indigenous, and I worked in the indigenous health and healing industry for some time. So I had a lot of exposure to the cultural context and the lack of awareness in the systems around cultural context when it comes to um, passing from the traditional lens. And I'll get to that in a second. But there is a lot about how society influence, influences our death culture and actually highlights our fear of death. And a lot of this is around ageism right? Aging is shunned. Everything is anti-aging everywhere. And so it's like get Botox and anti-aging creams and stay young forever and really kind of like highlighting the beauty of youth. Whereas I don't know anyone over 60 who wouldn't tell you, you don't know shit. Like even in your 50s, like you don't know shit. You don't know, you're not wise. You're, you think you're wise, but you're not wise. Like there just seems to be something that happens over 60 um, that people just seem to feel more themselves themselves um they just care less about what other people say like they're actually living and I think that more people in their 60s need to talk about this so that people in their 30s 40s 50s are not being overconsumed with this anti-aging you know programming that we're receiving out in the general society and so that we're not fearing getting older because there's a lot of beauty to getting older I see it my dad calls me out on it all the time he's like <laughs> I could see his frustration with me because you know we all think we know what we know um, he's like you don't know anything <laughs> like just wait until you're older um so be very uh, cognizant of that as you're out in the world like are you afraid of getting older what excites you about getting older like we really need to shake up the death culture in North America so inhumane bereavement policies I mean if I were to lose I mean if I lost my cat when I was in the corporate world I would probably still take two weeks like and I, w I wasn't even ready I tried to do a reading after four weeks and I was not ready um, after four weeks and so we have inhumane bereavement policies in the workplace that do not align with the actual healing journey that is required when you lose somebody that you absolutely love and that was with you forever um, dying in hospitals is really relatively new so we've forgotten our roots so the uh, industrialization and like the business behind hospitals is actually only like 130 years old but we used to die at home before and now more and more people are dying in hospitals and that's not natural and so a lot of people who are aging and starting to look at their mortality are like I don't want to die in a hospital but us left behind we don't know how to deal with somebody who's dying much like we don't know how to give birth at home very much anymore and that's becoming a little bit more popular now I'm hoping that through 
uh, you know, a reboot of death culture and society will fear less um, dying at home because I know after doing end of life doula training and looking what it actually looks like to die in hospital versus at home, I would choose home every single time. And before I took this program, I would have said hospital. Um, and now I see the beauty of actually dying at home. And up until like 120, 130 years ago, we all died at home and we knew what to do instinctively. We knew what to do and you don't have to suffer at home. So there's a lot of people who feel that you're going to suffer at home, but you're, you're not necessarily like everything, um, you can have like in home, um, care so that nobody's like in pain. Uh, so this is kind of around the Delph culture as well, that, um, forming people's, uh, experience with aging and, and reaching the end. Also lack of cultural context, you know, in indigenous culture, there's like a family that's assigned to the death protocol. Um, I, I believe it's Muslims that need to be, um, you know, buried or, or sent to see that day and indigenous culture, it's not common and it's not acceptable to get, uh, you know, the coroner's office is doing these autopsies and that's against cultural protocol. And so luckily in the last job that I had, I did get to see some shift and changes where the system was catching up to, uh, cultural humility and accepting that, okay, we actually need to look at people's cultural beliefs as a way to honor their grief process um, instead of just doing what the government tells us to do. So people are waking up to this. So this shift is kind of happening, but it's really important for mediums that we understand, you know, that we don't know shit about people's cultures. We don't, and we can't pretend that we know. And so we need to be careful about what we're talking about and making sure that we're being very humble, um, when it comes to people's cultures and, um, death and dying and grief. So some ideas on how creating a positive death culture, um, you know, spoiler alert, none of us are making out of here. We should be really be normalizing the death conversation. We should be talking to our loved ones about, um, their departed loved ones without shame or fear of evoking other people. And we should be telling people about our dying plans, right? Like that's some of the work of an end of life doula is helping people plan for their passing. What music do you want played? Who do you want there? Who do you not want there? Do you want sense in the room? Do you want a light? Do you want a dark? Do you have the window open? Do you want the window closed? Do you want fresh air? So there's a lot that needs to be considered when you're facing your end of life. And so normalizing the conversations, like I've given my family strict instructions. I want to be cremated and I want to be turned into a crystal. And so I'm actually testing this out with my cat's ashes, which I just received last week. And I'm actually sending off some of his ashes to be turned into a crystal that's a window catcher. And I'm getting a few made. And so I'm talking to my family about death all the time. I have a Scorpio girl. She's always talking about death. She's always talking about angels and dark side and light side and stuff like that. And so that's because we have just like this open conversation in our house where death is not shamed. It's not feared. Of course, I'm scared to die. Of course, I don't want to leave my children. I'm not saying I'm fearless. And listening to Kubler-Ross's interview, you'll know that even somebody who spent their life's work their body of work in this field still fears death when it comes I don't think that fear ever goes away um, but we do need to normalize the conversation so that it's not like this shunned not talked about thing 
Um, so death cafes, I don't know if you've heard of this. I don't know if they're in the States, but they're in Canada. So people actually host death cafes where they bring a black cake. It reminds me kind of like what an AA meeting would look like. I'm sure that they're online now, but it's not like for people who are, it's not a grief support group and it's not a support group for people who are facing terminal illness. It's actually like just a place to talk about death. Like, let's just talk about, uh, beliefs. Let's talk about the death process, like what fears come up for us. It's just a place to kind of normalize the conversation. So I intend on creating some death cafes in the future. Of course, time is not my friend right now, but this is on my radar to want to do. Um, looking at legacy projects is a really good way to create a death positive culture. So if you like my mom, I mean, she's so amazing. Her memory is just like, you guys know, I talk about my memory all the time. And she's talking about writing this book called our, my story, because it's shocking how, you know, two people can experience the same experience and have two completely different experiences about it, two different memory sets on it. And so I feel like her legacy project without her even knowing or realizing that's what she's doing is creating this book for me and for my children. And so that the story of our family can live on because I can't recall even, you know, my, my Nana's middle name. Like I, my memory is just completely shocking. My mom's memory is everything. So, you know, that's kind of like a thing. Think about legacy projects. I know even for me, a legacy project, again, think of a death positive culture is I have 11,000 photos on my phone just from last year. Like how are my children going to get these phone, these photos? Because they're only coming up in my Facebook memories, right? I gave, Facebook actually has a legacy um, system where I gave my best friend legacy access to my account. So if I die, she gets my account and I just gave her instructions just to keep posting memes, right? I'm like, just post memes. You know what my humor's like, just, just do it. And so Facebook's actually thinking about this legacy stuff as well. But how am I gonna create these photos so that my children have memories? Because I have a photo book from when I was a baby. They don't have one. So this, legacy type stuff right um openly discuss your transition plans I, I could talk all day long about what to do with the body after it passes that's more green um that's like you know because getting cremated and buried is so bad for the environment like so bad it's not even funny and there is a lot of science being done right now and a lot of research on um, different ways of disposing of bodies um, that's more earth friendly and less impactful on co2 and of course the embalmment um, toxins that go into mother earth so i could talk all day about that but i'm not going to do both that here and then, of course, talking about people who've passed before, asking questions, um, creating this kind of like space and cur curious place that you can um, talk about people who have passed. Um, again, just creating positive death culture. So now I just kind of wanted to get into grief and mediumship. So this is kind of what I have learned over the past year about grief, um, just through my studies and the books I've read and the classes I've taken and the conversations that I have. But I really wanted to talk about grief and mediumship. So it's really important to understand the difference between empathy and sympathy. And I will say up until I fully understood the difference between these two energies and the way that they play out in the grieving process, I have definitely been living in the sympathy realm, which is a no-no. No, no sympathy. So sympathy are statements like it will get easier. Trust me, or they're in a better place now. And everything happens for a reason, which I hate that saying everything happens for a reason, even if it's true, even if it's part of your spiritual philosophy arsenal, it is not helpful. It is not helpful for people who have lost jobs. It's not helpful for people who have lost their loved ones. It's not helpful 
at all ever. So please keep that comment to yourself. But that's a sympathetic comment. It drives disconnection. It's always looking to fix a situation. It's always looking for the silver lining. It's light washing. It's spiritual bypassing. It's unhelpful platitudes like he's in a better place now. So sympathy, no, no. When we're doing mediumship, we need to be looking at the empathetic. Okay, sorry, my dog's like chewing my wicker basket under my desk right now. Luna, come over here. Sorry, guys. Come over here, baby girl. Yeah, play with that. Play with this. Here you go. And the scary thing is after this, I have three sessions. <laughs> All right, all good. So when we look at empathy, we're looking at the statements where we fuel connection, where we're feeling with people and we're actively listening. So one of my favorite empathetic statements is, this fucking sucks, right? Or I hate that that happened. Or I'm so glad you told me. Like we're not trying to fix things. We're able to actually put ourselves in other people's shoes. And this is where I feel like I, I ventured into the sympathy realm is because I never experienced grief. I actually couldn't meet somebody empathetically in the space because I'd never been there myself. And so if you're much like me, um, you know, where I was before I lost my cat bender and went through grief for my first time, I highly recommend as a piece of homework that you create, especially those who are working mediums or psychics or people who are doing light work, light work, you need to create uh, an arsenal of empathetic statements that you can make even at work when people are passing around the cards because I'm sorry for your loss like have a couple empathetic statements that you can call upon when you were working with somebody who's grieving even if like your friend like loses somebody you want to have an empathetic statement because nothing's more annoying than somebody trying to like fix a situation that just can't be fixed so really understanding the difference between empathy and sympathy is very important when it comes to mediumship so when I talk about the medium's responsibility with grief, so this is just me. Everyone's going to have very different spiritual philosophies. Everyone's going to have very different experiences. So please just take what I'm about to say when I talk about medium's responsibilities of grief as my own personal value set, my own personal boundaries. And you have to assess your own and create your own that align with you and the work that you do for spirit. But I'm just going to tell you mine. No drive-by readings, right? This is so important. I was a victim of a drive-by reading a few years ago by a very well-known medium in Vancouver, and it was the most uncomfortable, awkward situation I could find myself in. One, they were not accurate, so I felt incredibly bad. And two, the things that she was trying to bring up, I remember thinking to myself at that time, man, if I was grieving from this loss, I can't imagine um, how hurt or triggered I would be in this moment. So really when we're doing drive-by readings, and this is like what you see Teresa Computer do on TV, which I will tell you with all honesty, those are not drive-by readings. Like those are completely set up. Um, the people who are in those stores all signed waivers of consent that they could be read for that day. So everybody knows that the potential to get read is about to happen. So they're not surprised by any means, right? This is TV. So what we see now is more and more mediums approaching people in the grocery store, people approaching people, um, you know, wherever they're out and about and providing messages. But we have to be very cognizant that we don't know where somebody's at in their grieving process. And it just probably isn't appropriate. Now, I have been inspired by the world of spirit when I've been out. I was actually getting my tires changed a few years ago. And there was this elderly lady beside me. And I could just feel spirit all around me. And I could see... I could literally feel them around me 
And I would say to them saying, I don't do that. Like you need to align it so that she talks to me or she books with me and I'll be happy to pass along your message, but I don't do that. And I mean, there's a funny story there, but I just wanted to share that part of that story. Um, so no drive-by readings, please be responsible out there with your gift, right? Space holding is really important. So when I talk about space holding, I'm talking about let there be an uncomfortable silence. You might be uncomfortable in that silence, but just being there, just having the energy beside them is helpful. So this is again, the not fixing. This is the not filling a blank, um, you know, space in the conversation and filling it with some sort of platitude. This is literally just active listening and just like being their heart open, empathetic vibes for that person having strong boundaries in your mediumship practice that are rooted in love and and goodness is going to be very important um active listening uh I actually had to learn active listening. And I remember my dad saying this as a teenager. Uh, it totally stuck with me, some of the things he said to me when I was a teenager. And one of them was, you're not listening to me, you're hearing me. Like you're not actually listening, you're thinking about what you're going to say next. And so I actually had to be taught, and I learned this through note-taking courses when I was in the corporate world, how to actively listen. Now, I don't have a post-secondary education, so I know that people who go through the university experience are good active listeners and note-takers, but not everyone has has this skill so you know and it's actually a stat Mavis Patella talked about years ago that not a whole lot of mediums go through post-secondary um one of the signs of mediumship is actually struggling in the conformed education world um so I know that people who are drawn to mediumship here will probably understand a lot of what I'm talking about right it's hard in a reading setting too when you're listening but you're getting all this inspiration at the same time let's face it mediumship is a multitasking um sport so we need to learn how to be actively listening and not interjecting all the time and and really hearing them so matching the energy of the client is incredibly important and something that you can't teach either you have it or you don't and hopefully if you don't have it something that you do try to learn because I'm a very happy person like I could bring joy into a reading even if we're talking about a, a loss of you know a brother or an uncle or a father like I can bring joy to that experience but you have to match intelligently the energy of the client if you're dealing with a client who's so deep in grief that um they're just so down you can't approach all bubbly and part of being a light worker and people pleasing is like oh I'll just like fix this with my happy disposition right that's not helpful so you have to be very careful to match the energy of your client I'll get some clients who are very quiet and they talk very slow and I'll actually find myself talking slow and talking a little bit quieter to match their energy right because I don't want to startle them either it's very important to refer, refer, refer. We need to be real in our abilities and in our practices that we um, are not equipped for the most part to help somebody through the grieving process. So it's very important if you're working offline or online that you have um, resources that you can send people to. So this could be a grief counselor or a grief group or an online course that helps with a certain type of grief. So familiarize yourself with the resources so that you could truly be of support for your client. Um, try not to fix everything, right? Knowing that, you know, you can't fix grief. Grief is incurable. It, there's no cure for it. It's ongoing. You just learn to live life with that heart ripped open in very different ways. And, and everyday grief is very different. So you can't fix it. So be very real about that. Um, also acknowledging the added pressure to your readings. So there is, uh, 
you know, when somebody comes with such a great need, it is easier to connect for them because that need is there, but it also adds a lot of psychological pressure for the medium. So when you are working with somebody who you know has lost a child, and for particular for me, that's the highest pressure reading, um, you need to really be honest with yourself and acknowledge that there is added pressure there, right? Just acknowledge it so it kind of like moves the energy around. And be clear with your client that mediumship is not a cure for grief, right? So I was recently studied by a university um, a counseling and psychology department who was doing research on mediumship and counseling as a way to marry in uh, the holistic healing grief process. And the way that I described it to them, I said, look, like, I would think that somebody going through grief would need counseling ongoing and somebody who wanted proof that their loved one's um, life continued, they would need to see me once. And they really liked that perspective. Um, And I thought that that was kind of neat that Spirit brought it to me in that way, right? We never want our clients to come back to us time and time and time and time again and have us be a crutch to experience the energy of their loved one because as mediums, we need to be very responsible that we're not getting people like addicted to our work and then that they are well equipped to understand that their loved ones are not with us. They are with them. And if we could even just spend five minutes in a reading, letting them know how they can open themselves to really feel the presence of their loved ones and receive signs, that's going to make a bigger impact to the world of spirit than having them come back time and time again. My dog has my shoe now. Okay. So finally, consider reading rules around grief. And so you might've heard you know, people say like, oh, don't book a mediumship reading for six months. And I remember me being really confused around, and I know a lot of people would have experienced this, like, does this mean my loved one doesn't make it for six months, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it actually took me, I've connected even this year at one of my demonstrations, a spirit who'd passed away the month before. And she was far enough along in her grief process that I was able to make this like seven minute connection in this demonstration. But the truth of the matter is, Grief is one of the densest, low-vibe energies I have ever experienced in this human experience, ever. Ever, ever, ever. And so you have to think of mediumship as this three-way link where if you know, me and spirit are ripe and ready to go, but the sitter, that third link energy, is very down... And it's hard to reach those levels um, uh, energetically to meet that of spirit with clarity. So I feel that's why you need to have rules. I do tell people the same thing. I wouldn't get a reading for six months or people who want to come back. I make them wait a year. Um, And I say, you know, come back in a year. Let the energy move. Let some grief process and let's see what happens in a year. And so think about having some rules, and I'm putting that in air quotes, in your own spiritual practice so that people kind of understand your philosophy, your mission statement, and your boundaries around working with people who are grieving it's gonna be very very important and show that you have a lot of maturity and responsibility in your practice so homework because this is spirit school so if you choose to want to evolve as a medium or as a light worker and working with people who are in grief uh, for homework i highly recommend that you create a reference library of empathetic responses to prepare yourself with Um, create a mission statement and rules for your grief and mediumship like i just talked about and find local national or local resources to refer your clients to when it comes to grief so 
that is kind of what I wanted to say around um, grief and mediumship and just, you know, how important it is as mediums that we grow and evolve um, our awareness of different aspects of loss and mediumship and the healing journey. And like, we just can never stop growing. We can never stop learning. Um, if you're interested in end-of-life doula work, it's a lot more than just, you know, helping people cross over like that visually visualing it's like helping people normalize a death conversation it's giving people a safe space to talk about their transition plans um it's a very beautiful area of work and you know i'm looking forward to getting more into it as my children get older and my life becomes maybe a little bit more predictable that might be a dream right because i keep adding puppies and stuff to my life but um, it is a beautiful area of work and I'm going to be doing a lot more um, teaching around this because it's an area I'm obviously passionate about. I hope that you had some good takeaways with this and I hope that you enjoyed it. I would love to hear your comments if um, what resonated with you and if you have anything to add to the conversation. So if you're on my podcast, leave a review, give me five stars. It would be so helpful. If you're on YouTube watching the presentation, definitely leave a comment below. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode, you guys. I love you all. I hope that you have a wonderful week and we will be back next week. All right. See ya.